All God's people said, amen. amen. That song makes me smile um, because we do know how it ends. And it is, it's, it's a unique thing, isn't it? I was thinking about this as we were singing that. Why, does, why didn't Jesus just come the first time, die for sins, um, and then save us and then just get us out of here <laughs> and get us to glory, right? Like, why does he let us go through all the tough stuff in this life, this process of sanctification until we die or he comes back? And he's got his reasons. I think one of the reasons that the Bible would put forward is that he wants to display his strength through our weakness, right? And there's this interesting verse, we don't think about this much, in Ephesians chapter 3 that came to mind as we were singing that song and I was just thinking about, you know, why doesn't he just get us out of here and, you know, what's the point kind of. Um, But it says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is now being made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Again, it's kind of an obscure verse, but what that means is there's angels and demons that we don't see in the spiritual realm, and God is making known his power and his wisdom through us, through the church. And all he wants from us this morning is our insufficiency, our weakness, our brokenness. And he's doing with that things that we'll never see until we get, until we get to heaven someday. Um, but Jesus really has already won the battle. Amen? He, he, really, he really truly has. And I don't in any way want to minimize the tough stuff that is represented here this morning. Because I know that there's a lot of tough stuff. And, I, and it, is, it is hard. Amen? Life will throw some real hard stuff at you. But it is all under the sovereign hand of a loving father. And what he wants for us is just to trust him and trust specifically that the battle's already been won and it's ultimately going to be okay. All right. Let me pray so everybody can sit down. Father, thanks for today. We really do love you. Lord, would you just calibrate our hearts to the truth of your word? Um, We have so much that is distinctly ours as Christians, as believers, as those who've been born again, as disciples. It's, it's just ours. And it's true for us who know Jesus as our Savior. And Lord, one of those things is, is that we are fighting a battle, but it's already been won. And I, I don't know who else can talk like that other than the Christ follower. So Lord, help us to live like that's true, because it is. Um, please be with us this morning. I, I just truly want to give you this time Please give me words to speak in the moment that I need it. Please give each one of us hearts to receive what your word would say to us this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You guys can have a seat. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, please grab them and go to the book of, drum roll please, Matthew. Ah, uh gotcha. Um, We're taking a break from the book of Romans today. Just uh, for a couple reasons. One is, and first and foremost, is this is a, what we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 8, and so that's where you can go, um, is a section that we recently, Mark and I had kind of gone over um, and used it as part of what we're doing with, with the, one of the recent E2 courses on how to study your Bible. And there's just been some things in here that as we went through it that night, I just can't get away from and, and I've just kind of been burning in my heart and I want to share them with you. The other reasons being is that as we, 
as I was looking at Romans uh, this week, I think we're going to do Romans 14, uh, 1 through 12, and then next week finish out the rest of chapter 14. Um, those two sections, the whole of the chapter really goes together well, and so I'm going to cover all of it next week, and it felt like a good place for me to be able to jump in and do this. Um, I do believe that uh, the Spirit helps us and leads us, as we, and we really do this. We, we prayerfully consider what to be um, preaching on over the course of a year as a church family here, um, and, uh, and while I, I have no doubt that the Spirit led us to go through the book of Romans this year, as we go along, there's always things also that, um, little messages that I want to preach and things I want to say, and I'm trying to look for opportunity to be able to do that. But this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8 primarily. We're actually going to pick up the last couple verses of Matthew chapter 7, and then we're also going to wander into Matthew chapter 9 a little bit. I'm not going to read it at the outset just because it's quite a few verses uh, for the sake of time. I will pretty much read all of it as we make our way through it, but I'm just going to kind of read it and make some comments and point some things out as we go. Brief flyover of the book of Matthew. Matthew is built around these five blocks of teaching by Jesus. Intermingled between the blocks of teaching, you have... Um, little act, I won't say little acts of miracles, that's a bad way to say it, um, acts of miracles, things that Jesus does, little interactions with his disciples in between there that kind of support and gird the teaching, uh, the blocks of teaching that he's, uh, that he's just given. What you have here in this section of Matthew is you have the first block of teaching that has just happened, one of the, probably the most famous sermon in the world, the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. It is at the end of the Sermon of the Mount where I want to pick up here with what it says, and then we're going to roll into some very uh, short accounts. There's actually seven quick-hitting accounts that Matthew puts back-to-back -back that actually uh, play a role in undergirding what we, what we see here at the very end of this block of teaching at the end of Matthew chapter 7. So at the end of Matthew chapter 7, look at verses 28 and 29. Here's where we'll pick it up. It says, and when Jesus had finished saying these things, when he'd finished the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He was teaching as one who had authority. So he would say things like this, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He does that several times. Now, the scribes and the rulers of the people, the Pharisees, they would teach just pretty much somebody else's commentary, what had been kind of historically passed down. When Jesus would say things, when he would teach with this authority where he'd say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he wasn't changing the scriptures, but he was rightly interpreting the scriptures. He was rightly interpreting the scriptures, the Old Testament for them, um, in the way that it was supposed to be uh, taken. But he had this authority to do this, and people didn't do this, Okay. Um, but Jesus is the very word of God, and so he comes with this authority, and he speaks like one who has authority, but the question would be, Jesus, you talk like you've got authority. Do you actually have authority? You talk the talk, but do you walk the walk? You say you've got authority, but can you back it up? Oh, he can back it up. He can back it up, amen? And that's what we see in most of chapter 8 and into the beginning of 9, is he absolutely backs up the authority that it sounds like he has, and that they recognize he backs it up with supernatural power, declaring himself to be the Son of God, and thus declaring that he has the authority to teach the way that he teaches and to rightly interpret the Scriptures for us. Now, there's a subtle difference between power and authority that I think is important that we work through here as, as we go forward. Jesus had both. Jesus had both power and authority. Power is the ability to do something. Authority is the right to do something. So kings and rulers 
have both need to have both power and authority. If you think about nations where there's like rebel militia groups that are trying to usurp the government, the government has the right to do something, okay? They have authority, but they might not have as much power as the militia group. So the militia or the, or the rebel group has power, but they don't have authority. Jesus has both, okay? We're gonna see here that he has all power, um, the ability to do something, but he also has the authority, meaning the right to do something, because he is king. Again, just a very brief flyover of the Gospels uh, is that each one of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have a purpose in what they're trying to write and what they're trying to communicate about Jesus. And there's much overlap between different stories and things that they will say, and they'll each kind of tell them from different perspectives. Many of the uh, accounts we're going to look at here in just a second are found also in Mark and also in Luke. Um, but... Uh, but much of what Jesus, Jesus does, or I'm sorry, what the gospel writers do, is that they have a specific kind of bullseye that they're, that they're looking towards. And in the gospel of Mark, Mark primarily puts forward Jesus as a servant. In the gospel of Luke, Luke primarily puts, forward Jesus, puts Jesus forward as a man, focuses on his humanity. And in the gospel of John, he primarily focuses on Jesus' divinity. But in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew primarily focuses on Jesus as king. Jesus as king. Again, he also talks about his servanthood, his humanity, and his divinity. They all cover all of them, but Matthew's special focus is on his kingship. And kings have authority. And he's teaching like one who has authority. And in these short little hitting stories that Matthew, like an artist, kind of layers on top of each other that bring depth, um, and clarity and kind of bring this picture forward. He wants us to understand that Jesus has all authority. So let's just begin to read, and I'm going to make some comments as we go along. Beginning in Matthew now, chapter 8. It says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Here's the first short little story. You have the story of a leper. And please, I, you know, sometimes we read the Bible and we hear a lot about lepers and leprosy, actually in the Bible in several, in several different places, but you really got to stop and slow down and put yourself in this guy's place, Okay. Um, in fact, the Bible talks so much about leprosy that we have two whole chapters devoted on how to interact with lepers in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 13 and also in chapter 14, there's all these ceremonial laws for how a person um, that had leprosy was to be declared clean or unclean by the priests and also how they could, uh, how they could either have to be isolated from society or how they could be brought back in to society if they've ever been declared unclean. Um, in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45, just to give you a little bit of a picture of what this guy is feeling, is the leper had to go around, and here's what it says in Leviticus 13, verse 45. It says, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes, so they weren't allowed to have new clothes, and let the hair of his head hang loose. He wasn't allowed to cut his hair or to comb it. And he shall cover his upper lip. And what that means, he go like this. And he shall cry out everywhere he goes, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. 
So put yourself in this guy's shoes. Can you imagine waking up one morning and all of a sudden you see a spot on your skin in this context? Perhaps he's married. Perhaps he has a wife, kids. What do you do? We don't know how long it's been. We don't know how long he's lived like this. But one thing's for sure. He has definitely been living a life that's been pretty lonely. He's been living in isolation. Not just this disease and the physical suffering that it would bring. Leprosy was a disease that would kind of numb you to things, and it, it, it did torment, but it also would numb you to the point where usually they would end up burning themselves or hurting themselves, and they wouldn't even feel that they were bleeding or that they were burned or that they need care because they, because they were just numb all over. Um, it's quite a picture that the Bible also puts forward and uses it as a metaphor for sin, that this is what sin does to us. Uh, it kills us kind of slowly, and it makes us numb to conviction, what we're supposed to feel. And it put him in isolation. And it says there, again, if you read carefully, that when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Well, how did this leper get to him? Because he came running in. Unclean, unclean, and everybody pulls away. And he comes before Jesus, and he kneels before him, a sign of humility. And here's what he says. He says, Lord, if you will, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, I think this guy was somewhat familiar with the scriptures. Um, there's a great contrast. If you, Again, if you read Leviticus 13 and 14, which we don't have time for this morning, it's 19 times in those two chapters that the word pronounce is used in regards to the priests. And it would say the priests could pronounce or declare somebody clean or unclean. They could pronounce it. They could declare it. They could say what you are, but they couldn't make you something other than what you were. Right? But here comes Jesus. And the leper says to him, I know you can't just declare me what I am, because I know you can make me something that I'm not. You're able to make me clean. And Jesus says to him, don't miss this, I will. I will. It's beautiful. Jesus doesn't just teach like one who has authority. He has authority to change people's lives, to change them from lepers to being clean. He has authority to change us from being sinners to being children of the king, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Dear friends, Christianity, it's not just some self-help and good principles that we try to learn and assimilate into our lives where we just live by a bunch of principles. The Christian life is one of supernatural transformation that happens when we're touched by King Jesus. Amen? It's what he does. And again, we're going to go on here, you know, a little bit of a spoiler alert, he's going he's gonna to change a bunch of other people, heal a bunch of other people, and many times he's going to say it just with a word. In fact, that's going to kind of be the theme as you go through the rest of the chapter, is he's going to do it just by speaking a word. But he doesn't just speak to this guy. Because again, he's wanting to heal more than just his disease, he's wanting to heal his isolation and his loneliness. And so he reaches out and he touches him, and if anyone else, if anyone else would touch a leper, they themselves would become a leper. 
To touch one who is unclean with leprosy is to become unclean. It's why nobody could help him. It's why people could only declare what he was, but not Jesus. Jesus comes into our uncleanness, into the leprosy of our sin and our filth and our darkness, and he makes us something that we once were not. Because he doesn't just talk like somebody who has authority. He doesn't just talk a good game. Is it not wonderful news this morning that Jesus doesn't just talk the talk? Amen? He has real authority to change people's lives. And we need to remember this. We need to keep this in mind and we need to come to him because he has authority like absolutely no one else. And so that's the first little story going on. Again, there's a lot more. We could preach on each one of these stories for weeks. There's so much good stuff in here, but going on, verse five, here comes another quick little story. It says, when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward appealing to him, saying, Lord, my servant is paralyzed and at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word. See, here he's not going to, he, he just says the word. Again, when you have authority, you just have to say it, and the job gets done. Jesus has real authority. This was a guy who understood authority. Um, he was a centurion. You can see that in the, in the, in the, in the title there, centurion. It was a Roman, a Roman um, uh, soldier who had a hundred, that's where you get centurion from, um, who had a hundred soldiers underneath him. And he unpacks this here, and again, the reason he, this is part of the scriptures is because God's trying to communicate to us how we understand that this works. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just say a word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. So this guy was under authority, but he also had authority over others who were under him. And he says, and I say to one, go. It's just, that's all that's needed is just a word. Go and do this, and he does it. And come, and, and, and he does it. And then verse 10, a very strange verse. You don't see this very often, and we don't think about this. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. What could possibly make Jesus marvel? This makes Jesus marvel. And he said to those who followed him, we, we understand why he's marveling. Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such great faith. Jesus came, first and foremost, to the house of Israel. Yes, he was going to go to the Gentiles. He's a savior for all peoples in all times, from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. But when he came the first time, he came primarily to Israel to reach them, that they would be a blessing <coughs> to the world as God originally intended. Um, but he didn't find any sort of faith like this. And this is one of the things that you'll find throughout the, throughout the Gospels, and especially in Matthew, is that it's full of unusual suspects. Those who you think would get it, many times don't get it. In fact, when we think about the disciples, almost always in all of the Gospels, usually the disciples are a picture of what not to do. They really are. But when you do have somebody who's exemplary, it's somebody that you wouldn't expect. It's not a Jew, he's not a, really a, a religious guy probably. He's a Gentile. And he causes Jesus to marvel, but here's the thing. Just because he has simple faith in Christ. And again, we can spend a lot of time on this. I do think we should spend a little bit because it's, it's part of the point and why he's, he's put forward here. But notice here that Jesus is the one that says that he has great faith. He himself doesn't say that he has great faith. I don't think he would have thought that he has great faith. 
When people, when, when, when men get up sometimes, and many, you know, you'll see TV evangelists and preachers do this all the time, they kind of boast about their great faith that they have. When you see, show me somebody who's boasting about their great faith, and I'll show you somebody who just doesn't get it. It's kind of like, well, we're this, this past week, we're, I think maybe, I forget who I was talking with this about, but, you know, it's like, can you even be aware of the fact that you're humble if you're going to be truly humble, right? Show me somebody who's certain that they're humble, and I'll show you somebody who's not, right? Because to be aware of your humility is to be proud about your humility. The point being here is that this guy is an example for us. Is it, he's just saying, no, no, I'm not worthy to even have you, have you come under my roof, but, but he gets how this works. He gets that Jesus has authority, and the key is simply this, Jesus, will you do this? If you can't, it's, it's, it's honestly not a big thing for you, Lord. Just say the word, and it's done. You don't need to come touch him. You don't need to come pray some sort of elaborate prayer. He understood Christ's authority. And, and if I can just say this too, this is where our faith should lie, amen? Our faith should lie in the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ to do whatever he chooses to do. So, Whenever you hear somebody kind of, you know, commanding God to do something and, you know, in Jesus' name, I, you know, uh, uh-uh. that's not it. It's about if Jesus chooses to do so because he is the one with all authority. And Jesus does it. And then he says this in verse 11. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And then there's a contrast, verse 12, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When he refers to here in this context, the sons of the kingdom, he's referring primarily to many in the nation of Israel. Again, those that he came to that should have got it. In John chapter one, it says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. To the anyone who simply will bow the knee in humble faith to Christ, He's able and willing to change you and to change your circumstance. Jesus has authority over leprosy. He has authority over sickness. All he's looking for is humble faith in him. That's it. Goes on here, another short little story with um, one person kind of highlighted, but also several, uh, several instances that we don't get a ton of detail on. Verse 14 says, When Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick, with a fever, so a few little details just by way of observation, is that Peter was married because he has a mother-in-law. Um, I think Peter cared for his mother-in-law. Uh, it says that he, Jesus comes to her and it says he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve them. Um, again, it's an interesting little story and then he goes right on, verse 16, he says, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons And he cast out the spirits with a word, again, just with a word, just with a word, which again highlights his compassion on reaching out and touching the leper. With a word, and he healed all who were sick, and this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses, and he bore our diseases. Um, Not exactly sure why Peter's mother-in-law is highlighted, maybe other than to highlight the fact that he has authority not over, 
not only over leprosy and over paralysis, but he also has authority over mother-in-laws. Maybe. Probably not, but just saying. <laughs> um, but he's willing to come, and he touches her, and it leaves. And here's where you get this, and we're going to see more of this. This is just kind of a little bit of foreshadowing. Verse 16, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. The demonic realm is very real. And we're going to talk more about this because there's going to be another story that highlights this reality much more. Um, the demonic realm is very real. To our Western minds, we just don't think about it a lot. We think everything is always a natural cause. Um, we think everything is always mental illness, uh, but it's not. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that there, there aren't some natural causes and that there isn't such a thing as, as mental illness, but I'm saying that the Bible again and again and again uh, many times will speak about the power of the demonic realm. And Satan's desire is very simple. It's to steal, to kill, and to destroy. The primary way that he does this is through lies, getting people to believe the lies, and then acting in disobedience. Um, and there were many people in that day, just as there are many people today, who are under demonic influence. And again, we will speak more about that as we go forward. <coughs> Excuse me. But just to pause for a second, I know I'm just running through this quick. He heals a leper. He heals a paralyzed guy that he doesn't even go see, but just says it with a word at the request of the Roman centurion. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. He has authority over, over fevers. He has authority over the demonic realm. And again, this is, there's actually seven of these little stories. We now come to the fourth one. And the fourth one, I'm just going to read, and then we're going to come back to it at the end, because the fourth one is unique in the midst of this, because the fourth one doesn't have any supernatural healing in it, and yet Matthew puts it together here in the midst of these supernatural events. But let me just read it, verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. I do want to highlight that little phrase. Make sure you catch that. He gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lie his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus says, Oh, I have such great compassion on you. Don't worry about it. Yeah, whenever it's convenient, come and follow me. No. Jesus says to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Quite a pointed phrase. I think we try to soften it sometimes. Uh, but we're going to come back to that story uh, in a little bit. Let's continue on. Verse 23. Very famous story. And when, Verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now remember, back in verse 18, it says he gave orders to go over to the other side. What it's referring to is the other side of the lake. And again, all this is happening in kind of real time. People were coming. There's a crowd. The leper, you know, comes screaming, unclean, unclean, makes away. Um, you know, the, uh, the cent Roman centurion, you know, requests that he comes. He says it with a word. He's healing Peter's mother-in-law. Then he, there's another great crowd. He gets into the boat, and they're getting ready to go over to the other side. In verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm by the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Lord, or they said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? 
oh, you of little faith. Now, one of the things you want to look for as you're reading the Bible are comparisons and contrasts. And so here, you see a contrast between, again, and like I said earlier, it's, it's usually unusual suspects that are put forward as the example, and those who you think would get it usually don't get it. Here you have the disciples, and he's rebuking them for having little faith. And you set that over and against and contrast it with the Roman centurion who wasn't a disciple, who probably didn't know the Bible as well as the disciples did, and yet he's set forward as an example of faith. And he, and he rose up, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, and I want you to get this little phrase. They said, what sort of man is this? It's literally, I think the, the King James might put it this way, but it's quite literally, what manner of man is this? What manner of man is this? See, at, at this time, they're, they're like still trying to decide, who, who is this guy? He speaks like one who has authority. He's, it's, it, it looks like he's also got some authority to heal the demonic and sicknesses and different things like that. But who is this guy? What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, a couple things in this story. How many of you have heard this story before? Yeah, Jesus, Jesus calms the storm. My question is, what were they supposed to do? Right? The, the waves are crashing upon them. They're afraid. It says they're being swamped by the waves. Wouldn't you think the thing you're supposed to do is to go and to wake Jesus? Yeah. That's what they do. And yet, Jesus rebukes them. Why? I think the answer lies back in verse 18. Because he told them, they're going to the other side. Remember? We're going to the other side. We're going to the other side. And Jesus always does what he says he's going to do. Amen? It's why we can sing this morning with such confidence. That we're fighting a battle that's already been won. It has been won because he did all that he said that he was going to do when he came the first time. And he's going to do all that he, is going to do when he, that he said he's going to do when he comes the second time. And he is working all things towards this glorious end. I think maybe what the disciples were supposed to do were to just take him at his word, which is why he rebukes them for their lack of faith, because he told them they were going to go to the other side. And I think they were just supposed to curl up next to Jesus, right next to him in the boat. How many of your prayers, I know a lot of mine have, how many of your prayers have ever sounded similar to what the disciples probably sounded like in this instance? Your prayers are really you just freaking out. Anybody? As if when I'm freaking out, I'm giving Jesus new information that he didn't already have. Right? God, where are you? Didn't you know? Look at this. Are you unaware that this is happening to me? And Jesus is asleep, not because he doesn't care, but because when you've got all authority in heaven and on earth, nothing freaks you out. And Jesus isn't freaked out in the slightest by this storm or any storm that comes into our life. And the Bible says very clearly, again, maybe not apples to apples with, we're going to the other side, but here's what the Bible does say. <laughs> it's going to be all right. <laughs> it's going to be okay. When nations rage and kingdoms totter, Psalm 46 says, he utters his voice and the earth melts. Russia, Ukraine, Israel, Hamas, 
there is one with all authority seated at the right hand of the Father who is in total control. He has already passed through death and has risen again, has ascended on high, has poured out his Holy Spirit, and at just a word, whenever he chooses, total tranquility, total peace. On the large scale of what's happening in the nations and also on the small scale of the things that are coming in to disturb your life. And as we grow in our faith and in our understanding of who he is, we, we have to move past just the idea that he's just some sort of man. And again, I know many of us would say, no, Eric, we, we believe that he's God and we believe that he's powerful and we believe that he's sovereign. Yeah, but do you believe that he's good? Do you believe that he's gonna get you through to the other side? Not that everything's always gonna be easy, Not that there's not going to be things that come into your life that are very difficult and don't turn out the way you thought they were going to turn out, but that ultimately, in the end, he's going to get you to where he promises, where where he's promised he's going to take you. And that is to his heavenly kingdom. At the very end of Paul's letter to Timothy, in in 2 Timothy, there's this very interesting phrase. Um, Again, Paul was writing that letter from jail, and he says, the Lord has delivered me and will deliver me from the lion's mouth and from every trouble that I come across, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here. He goes, and he will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Well, here's the thing. Paul never got out of jail, and a few months later, he was beheaded. But he knew what God had promised him, that God was going to bring him safely into his heavenly kingdom. And dear friends, if you want to follow Christ, you've got to cling to what he said is true. And what he said is true is that this world is not our home and he's got purposes for us here as long as he gives us breath here, but it's to bring him honor and glory. He's gonna see us safely through to the other side. But we've gotta live like this world is not our home and trust him. And when storms come, curl up next to him and trust that he's got a plan and that he has all authority. Going on here, this next little story that Matthew layers on top of the others that he's already shared. Verse 28, just one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. Um, They go to the other side of the sea after going through a storm. Verse 28, and when they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. Now, Mark and Luke also share this story. They only share that it was one man. Again, they, they never say that it was only one man. They just mention the one man probably because there was a, kind of like a primary one who interacts with Jesus. But Matthew gives us the detail that there's actually two. And it says, coming out of the tombs, and they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. Now, just a few more details so that you, again, fully get the picture, kind of like I wanted you to get the picture with the leper, is that Mark adds the details that many people had tried to bind these guys with chains. And nobody could. They would break the chains. It was supernatural strength. It says that they were crying out night and day amongst the tombs, cutting themselves with stones. And then Luke adds the detail that they never wore any clothes. They were naked. So just get this. Two naked dudes screaming, cutting themselves, maybe chains still like hanging on where they'd broken them and some shackles around the wrists, I don't know. Living amongst the tombs, gee, they get through the storm, the disciples are like, whew, that was awesome, we made, we made it through. They come to the side and here come these two guys, ah! 
running and screaming up to them. And again, it, many of the gospel writers do this, but it's always the unusual suspects that get it right. In fact, just a little, as you zoom out, a little sneak peek here, Matthew's book, as well as Mark's, kind of comes to this climax in Matthew 16 when Jesus asks the disciples this famous question. He's like, who, who do the people say that I am? They're like, oh, some of the prophets, you know, maybe Elijah, Jeremiah. He's like, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And the high point of the book is this declaration that they make. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Everything is building towards this idea of who is Jesus? Who is this man? What manner of man is this? What sort of man is this? Who is this guy? Well, he's the Messiah. He's the son of God. But here, before they ever get to that, before the disciples ever even fully, fully figured out, because again, at the end of the story with the storm, what, what sort of man is this? Who is this guy? But the demons get it right. The demons know who he is. <laughs> Verse 29, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Not just a man, not just a teacher, not just a rabbi. The demons get it right. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know that their time is coming. They know the Bible better than most Christians do. They know that there's an end when all darkness and everybody on the side of darkness is going to be tormented forever. They're like, you haven't come to do this. It's not fair. You're here to torment us before the appointed time? Now a herd of pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, and again, I want you to notice here, just a word, just a word, just a word, because he has authority. That's all he's got to do is speak it. Go. Go. So, they came out. The demons not only know who he is, they obey. Because he has real authority and real power. So they came out and they went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and they drowned in the waters. Now, why did Jesus throw them into the pigs, I wonder? Um, pigs were unclean animals. So again, it's along with the nakedness, the screaming, the cutting, um, the chains that they tried to bind them with. Uh, there's also this idea of uncleanness because of the pigs, which were unclean animals to Jewish people. Uh, so many people think, you know, maybe he's just like he didn't, Jesus didn't like pigs, and that might be part of it too, I guess. Uh, but I think the point is here, one of the reasons Jesus does it is so that everyone would know that the demons really had left. So he doesn't just cast them out, and I guess, you know, as you're going to see here, you see these guys sitting in their right mind, but that they all went somewhere, and they go down in, into the waters. Now, I think there's something else going on here, too, in, in terms of Jesus doing this and why the gospel writers share it with us, is that for the most part, although the disciples were fishermen, for the most part, to, to Jewish people, they were farmers. Um, they, they did agriculture. Uh, there's a, I've shared this with you before, but there's a little verse in the book of Revelation that says, the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sea there. And I don't know about you, but I like the ocean. You know, I like, I like the sea. I'm like, oh, no sea, no beach in heaven, you know. Um, why is that? Well, the, the sea was the place of the abyss. The sea was the place to the Jewish mind of where all evil came from. And so what I think what you have here is Jesus casting the demons out into these unclean animals and then down into the abyss. It's just a little foreshadowing of what is ultimately going to happen in the end when he casts the devil and his angels and all those who have not trusted in Jesus into the lake of fire. 
And it's just a picture, a little shadow of what's going to come ultimately one day. And the herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, they all came out of the city to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Weird response, not? Again, Luke and, and Mark tell us that they were fear, they were fearful. They were terrified. See, some people don't know what to do with Jesus' authority. They acknowledge his authority. They know they're going to stand before him one day. And I'll argue all day long that even just in the way that we're created in the image of God, though, though fallen and sinful, we have a conscience. And the Bible says that God has placed eternity into the hearts of men. And I think every man knows deep down inside that there's going to come a day of judgment. But many of us, when we see the authority of Jesus, and even when the gospel is shared and put forth, we either will bow the knee or we just suppress it. This is Romans chapter 1, that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Um, what will you do with the authority of Jesus? He's all-powerful. He can do what he wants. And let me just say here, in passing too, and we might come back to it a little bit at the end, that just some quick hitters on kind of marks of demonic oppression, and I wouldn't like get necessarily hard and fast. I don't want to overstate this with like every time you see these things, it's, it's demonic, and yet at the same time, what else would it be? But just in doing a little sketch of these demon-possessed men, not just from the story in Matthew, but also in, in Luke 8 and also Mark 5 where this story is found, but you've got violence, you have a fascination with death, they were living amongst the tombs. Um, uh, you have self-mutilation. You have isolation and loneliness. You also have uh, nakedness, immorality. We still see those things in our world, don't we? And behind it all is the devil. And the answer to it all is Jesus and his authority. Now this last story, we're going to wander into nine here, <coughs> but you'll see how Matthew pu puts the bookend on this without actually using this word authority that we saw at the very end of chapter seven, and we've seen a few places throughout here, throughout these stories. Going into Matthew chapter nine, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So again, he, all these crowds, he's doing all this stuff. He says, we're going to the other side. They go to the other side, heals the demon-possessed guys. They, don't want, they want him to leave, so he gets right back in the boat and leaves and comes back to the other side. Again, just another little note on anyone who is suffering with, with those types of, with, with violence and with death and with self-mutilation and harm and isolation and loneliness is Jesus is totally willing to go out of his way for you. 100%. That's all he does. He probably wanted to do more. They wanted him to leave. He's like, okay. Goes and gets gets in the boat and goes back. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, this is the same story that Mark shares, and it's the story of where his friends lower him down on a mat through the roof. Um, Matthew doesn't share that detail, but it's the same story. And it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the friends, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise 
and walk. Now here's the question, okay? Here's the question. Is you've got all these stories layered on top of each other about authority and about that he teaches with authority. He's got authority over the lepers. He's got authority over the demons. He's got authority over paralysis. He can do it with a touch. He can do it with a word. He's got authority over mother-in-laws and mother-in-law's fevers, over storms, over the demonic realm. What would you do if you had all authority? If you had all authority, all the power in the world, what would you do? I know what I'd do. I'd make some people tell me that they were sorry. I'd make some people come back and apologize. I would definitely go back and revisit those situations where I was wronged and I would vindicate myself. I might even go so far as just to flat out repay my enemies. What does Jesus do with all his authority? All authority. You know what he does? He uses that authority to forgive. Here's what he says in verse 6. He said to him, your sins are forgiven. Verse 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man has what? Authority on earth to what? Forgive sins. Is that Jesus wants us to know. After displaying all of his authority over the demonic realm, over sickness, over paralysis, over leprosy, over storms, over just everything. Here's what he wants us to know about his authority is that he wants to use that authority to forgive you of your sins. This idea here of forgiveness, it's the word aphiomai. It's actually quite a strong word. I'm not a Greek scholar, but there's a lot of good resources out there. And this is right from the Strong's Dictionary. It says that it is an intense form of the word imai, which means to go. And so aphiomai here, that is used for forgiveness, and, and for forgive, it's literally the idea of saying, so, what, go! Get out of here. It's actually the same word that was used uh, back in verse 15 when it says Jesus touched Peter's mother-in-law and the fever left her. And, it's, and the idea here is that it happened immediately. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. It's the same word that's translated there as just simply left. And so again, we kind of pass over some of this stuff in the English translation sometimes, but but the point is, is that Jesus says here, with all of his authority, just like he said to the storm, and it was still, just like he said to the leprosy, and it was gone, just like he said to the paralytic, and he, and, and, and he got up, he says to this guy's sins, go, be gone, be cast out. And dear friends, this is what Jesus does with his authority. Is this not good news? So many people walk around, people who say that they've trusted in Christ, and say that they're following him. You walk around with shame. You walk around like you're still a leper. You walk around like you're still unclean. The one with all authority, the very one that you have sinned against, 
looks at you this morning and he says to you, you are forgiven. And he wants you to know this. And he wants you to live in light of it. And he also wants us to offer it to other people. And it is incredible to me, this is such good news, that as Matthew paints this this vignette, these little portraits of the authority that Jesus has and who this man is, that the thing that is kind of like the capstone, the climax of all of of it, is with all this authority, what's he going to do? He wants to forgive you. Will you just receive it? Will you just receive it? Now again, this is actually um, something that theologians, this is funny to me, theologians will actually call this a sandwich. I always think of theologians, usually theologians use like words that are unnecessary and too, un- and too complicated to um, explain things, but it sounds fancy so they use them. But theologians will actually call this a sandwich. It's a literary term. How, how many like sandwiches? Yeah? Okay, praise God. But Going back to that little, those, those verses in verses 18 through 21 is you have a sandwich. You have three stories before that, the leper, the centurion, and Peter's mother-in-law, supernatural experiences, Jesus' supernatural power. You have three stories on the other side of it, Jesus calms the storm, the demon-possessed guys, and the healing of the paralytic. Those are the two buns, all right? The sandwich, the meat, is in the middle, And it's a literary device that writers would use to kind of get you to notice the main point. And so while on one hand, yes, the climax has come here. What's he going to do with his authority? He'll use it to forgive sins. But here's the real point. It's in verses 18 through 22. And that is how will you respond to it? How will you respond to it? And it's, it's an interesting little detail. But if you look at verse 20, 21 and 22... It says, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And again, he's probably not talking to that his father just died, but he's saying like, let me just hang on until I get my father's inheritance. And again, um, uh, you know, patriarchy and, and inheritance and ancestry was a very big deal in the, in, the, in the world in that time, just like it still can be today. But Jesus says to him, follow me. And then it says, and leave, leave. Everybody say leave. Hang with me, we're almost done. Leave, leave the dead to bury their own dead. You know what the Greek word for leave is there? It's aphiomai. The same word that Jesus says for the forgiveness of sins. He's like, go! Sins, get out of here! It's the same attitude that we're to have towards leaving everything of this world behind. Jesus says, follow me and aphiomai, the dead to bury their own dead. In light of Jesus Christ's authority, not only to do all the supernatural as we've talked about this morning, but his authority to forgive sins, how will you respond? There's only one response. There's only one response. Is he calls us to aphiomai, to cast out, to strongly put away everything of the world that is summed up as death. Will you do that? Will you do that? This is what it means to be a disciple, folks. Is if we say that we worship this God who has all authority, 
in heaven and on earth over everything that we've described this morning. Will you leave all to follow him? So as we said a couple weeks ago, it's not radical, it's logical. It's the only way to go. Worship team, you can come up. We're going to close. We're going to take communion this morning. Before we do that, if you would, would you just close your eyes and bow your heads with me for just a second? There is a lot of life circumstances represented in these short little stories that, again, we just walked through. I know I just kind of gave some running commentary on it this morning. But I, I really, as, as we come and partake of communion this morning, Christ shed blood, his broken body is what it represents. I really don't want you to think that this is just for somebody else. If you feel like you've been living in isolation, like the leper, if you feel unclean, if you feel paralyzed, like the guy in chapter 9, if you feel paralyzed like the centurion's servant, not knowing what to do, you feel like you can't do anything. If you feel, and you don't, just, you don't just think so, you know so. And this is very specific, but please, I hope you see where I'm getting it in the text. If you've been struggling with not just thoughts, but actions of self-harm, if you feel like you're thinking a lot about death, self-harm, violence, anger, if you've tried to stop, but you can't, my dear, dear friend, please hear the good news of the gospel. Jesus is willing to meet you this morning. This isn't just for somebody else. The same Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. He is seated on the throne. He is still saving people through the proclamation of his word and through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what he wants from you this morning is just to trust him. And just like I think perhaps he cast those demons out into the pigs and sent them into the abyss so that there would be a picture so we'd really know what happened. You can know that there is real power because of what we're going to partake of this morning and what it represents. That 2,000 years ago, he really did die for your sins. He really did die. His death on the cross was the death that you deserved. He died as your substitute and as your sacrifice. And we know that it was accepted because he rose again on the third day. That is the victory that we sang about earlier. And so please, this morning, in response to his authority, what faith looks like is as much as you know how, is forsaking all else and coming to him by faith, giving him your life. Heavenly Father, 
I thank you for sending your son Jesus. I thank you for your love. I thank you that just as you were compassionate back then, you were the same God yesterday and for, today and forever, and you are compassionate now, right now, this morning, in this moment. I pray that you would reach out and touch, that you would say the word to every heart that's longing for it today. We thank you for winning the victory for us. And it's with those thoughts in mind that we turn now to your table and we pray that you'd meet us as we sing and we worship. In Christ's name, amen. You guys stand with me. If you're helping